Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Thromboelastography, or TEG, allows for a bedside assessment of coagulopathy. Unlike other measurements such as INR, PT, and APTT, TEG may be more reliable in critically ill populations and have the added benefit of measuring fibrinolysis. Dr. Nicholas Vollmer joins us again on Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds podcast to review how TEG differs from other assessments, identifies patients who may benefit, and discovers barriers to its widespread implementation. Personalized medicine or individualized healthcare has become a standard of care in multiple different disease states for managing patients as it improves patient outcomes. One such area we're still trying to figure out how to best individualize a patient's health care is coagulation status. With current modalities involving uh, conventional coagulation tests such as PT, APTT, and INR, or assessing clinical relevant findings like oozing or bleeding or hemoptysis, or just trending serial CBCs to assess hemoglobin and hematocrit changes to assess their overall coagulation status and risk of bleeding. One old modality that's starting to see a resurgence in its use based off new research is thromboelastography, or TEG for short, as I'll refer to it for the rest of the presentation. TEG has the potential to show the patient-specific coagulation status and clot uh, real-time at the bedside, thus allowing us to make important decisions real-time as well. Today, I'm going to be discussing a little bit about the mechanism through which TEG works and how it differs from current assessments. I want to talk a little bit about patient scenarios as well as clinical disease states looking at the research supporting them. And then lastly, I'm going to talk a little bit about barriers to widespread use of TEG and some of the pitfalls we currently have. My hope is with this presentation that the audience members will be able to walk away knowing what TAG is, knowing what the parameters are, can understand what a tracing looks like, and then identify where it might be used in the future so that we're ready if it does become more widespread in its use. So TAG is actually one component or modality underneath visoelastography, which also includes ROTEM, which is rotational thromboelastometry. Represented here on the right in a crude representation I created, we have the pin in the blue inserted into a reservoir of blood, which is the red, uh, surrounded by a cup, which is black. The big difference between Rotem and TEG, while they may look very similar, is that Rotem actually spins the pin inside the blood, whereas TEG spins the cup around it. Rotem is more common actually in Europe, and it was a modified design of TEG and a more updated design since TEG has actually been first developed back in the 40s and 50s, but has only really started to see a lot more use today. In Europe, they primarily use TEG, whereas here, or sorry, in Europe, they primarily use Rotem, whereas here we use TEG. Um, and so for the remainder of this presentation, I'll be talking specifically about TEG. So this is a standard TEG tracing of what it might look like for a patient. To the untrained eye, it might not look like much, but this is telling us all about a patient's potential coagulation status and is associated with multiple different variables as well um, that have clinically uh, significant meaning. First, to break it down, we have two components here, clot formation up until the point where the amplitude is the widest or largest, and then the second half of clot breakdown or fibrinolysis. 
clot formation is further broken down into clotting time, so that just individual line until it breaks into two lines, and then clot kinetics up until that maximum amplitude spot. Clotting time is also known as R, which is our first parameter we'll be talking about. This is primarily based off of the coagulation cascade, and it's the time when we actually start the test to the first clot formation. The second parameter I'm going to be talking about is K, which is our time from clot initiation, or the end of R, uh, to a pre-specified amplitude of 20 millimeters. K is primarily dependent on numerous different things, including fibrin polymerization, um, clotting factor specifically, factor 8, as well as fibrinogen. The third parameter is our alpha angle. The alpha angle is the angle from the end of R to the end of K. And while this is a nonspecific parameter, um, it's primarily, and most researchers or clinicians would say, it's primarily dependent on fibrinogen itself. Um, so that's kind of the surrogate it's used for. Next is MA, or maximum amplitude. This is clot strength, essentially. What is the strongest point the clot becomes? And this is primarily dependent on platelets. TMA is our time to maximum amplitude, so the time from the initial start of the test all the way to that MA point. And it gives us an idea of how long did it take for them to reach that, uh, the largest strength of the clot, basically. And then the last variable I want to talk about is LY30, or lysis percentage at 30 minutes. This is how much the clot obviously has lysed or broken down at a pre-specified time point of 30 minutes, and it's dependent on the fibrinolysis of the host. So let's go back and put it all together now. So we have our R time, which is our time to clot, primarily based off of the coagulation cascade. In a patient that would be hypocoagulable, this time would be prolonged or elevated, which makes sense because it took more time for that clot to start. And what that would mean is we'd usually give fresh frozen plasma or FFP to that patient. The second parameter was K, our time to that certain clot strength of 20 millimeters, primarily dependent on fibrinogen cleavage and fibrin polymerization. In a hypocoagulable patient, this would once again be elevated, and we'd primarily manage this by giving cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate to treat this. The third variable was our alpha angle. This is that rate of clot, uh, clot formation. And as I'd mentioned previously, it was primarily based off of fibrinogen itself, in a hypocoagulable patient, it would be more acute or a, a smaller number, and we'd once again manage this by cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate. Our fourth variable was our MA, or maximum amplitude, also known as the greatest clot strength achieved. While this is based on numerous different things, the primary one is platelet count and quantity. And in a hypocoagulable patient, this would be decreased, and if it was decreased, you could give platelets to help. And then the last variable was our LY30, or clot lysis, at 30, clot lysis percentage at 30 minutes. Primarily controlled by fibrinolysis. In a hypocoagulable patient, this would usually be elevated, and we'd manage it by giving an antifibrinolytic tranexamic acid commonly. So now I wanted to talk a little bit about what some standard tracings look like, and specifically talking about those parameters that might be affected based on the patient's presenting state. So in the, in the middle here, I have our normal, which I created. So if it's a little bit off, I apologize. Uh, but compared to our anticoagulated or hemophiliac patient in the top left, you can already tell that the R time is prolonged. And that makes sense, right? If they're anticoagulated, it's taking longer for that clot to initially form. However, the rest of it is pretty standard. 
For the antiplatelet patient, um, overall their alpha angle will be decreased or more acute, their K time might be pro more prolonged, and then their MA for sure will be decreased because that was most uh, predominantly uh, dependent on our platelet count and quantity. In a hyperfibrinolytic patient, they usually have no issue forming the clot, however the fibrinolysis or LY30 will be really, really small um, because uh, they break down the clot really, really fast. No, sorry, it would be very large because it's percentage. In a hypercoagulable patient, the R time might be slightly shorter. However, the alpha angle will be much wider. The MA will be uh, uh, higher, essentially, and there'll usually not be as much LY30 or lysis. As that clot forms, it forms very large and strong, and then it doesn't break down as easy. And then lastly, our DIC stages one and two. In DIC stage one, your R time is slightly uh, shorter, and then you kind of have that initial hypercoagulable tracing followed by a hyperfibrinolytic state, whereas DIC stage two will have a prolonged R time, uh, more acute alpha angle, prolonged K, uh, smaller MA, um, and then it kind of looks like almost like an antiplatelet patient at the end. So this is really helpful if we have access to tracings, and you can kind of get an idea just from looking at the tracing what the patient might actually have in their underlying clinical disease state or uh, medications they might be utilizing. That said here, Mayo, we don't unfortunately have access usually to the tracings because you need a special application. So most of the times you'll get report outs of parameters or the specific raw values. And so you can kind of understand based off the values what's occurring or picture the tracing in your head. To further complicate things, uh, there's been a new development of multiple different assays that help you guide the question you might have or what you want to see within the patient based off your tag. The first or standard assay is a Callan assay. Callan is basically a contact activator that allows the clotting process to begin a little bit faster compared to like a native. The second assay is rapid tag or R tag. This is the similar to Callan, but it also adds tissue factors to the mix to allow it to go even faster so you can get more results quicker um, so you can make those clinical decisions even faster. The third is our heparinase tag or H tag. This has heparinase, which inactivates heparin, allowing you to see the coagulation status underlying a patient that may be receiving heparin uh, under your care. The fourth is a functional tag. Functional tag blocks platelet contribution to clot formation and primarily gives you an idea of what their fibrinogen is doing in the role of their clotting cascade or coagulation status. Fifth is platelet mapping. Platelet mapping can include ADP, which is adenosine diphosphate, allowing you to assess the actual impact of the P2Y12 inhibitor the patient might be on on their coagulation. Also includes arachidonic acid, which allows you to assess the impact of aspirin on their coagulation. Overall, how platelet mapping tags will work is usually they'll run multiple different sets of tags, and then they'll include in one uh, of each of these the ADP and arachidonic acid to give you an idea of that compared to a normal tag, how much of a difference is there. And then lastly, as I'd mentioned, native tags. This is basically just native whole blood, and you let the standard coagulation process occur. It's really impractical for clinical use right now because it takes so long for it to actually work, and therefore, by the time you want those clinically relevant variables, it's been too long. So why TAG? How does this differ from conventional coagulation tests? Some of the advantages of TAG is that it is point of care, and it gives you back variables very, very fast at the bedside of the patient, telling you all about their coagulation status. Second, it can test fibrinolysis or that clot breakdown, which is very relevant in certain disease states that might be hyper or hypofibrinolytic. 
Third, we have a lot of different access to assays that are con continuously coming out as well, which you can utilize to ask very specific questions of your patient's coagulation status as an add-on to your tag. And then fourth, you can get an evolving coagulation status. You can get a tag when they initially present, and let's say if it's a trauma patient and they get resuscitated and reversed, then you can get a tag 10, 15 minutes later and see how it's now changed uh, based off those therapies you've done and if you need to give additional therapies. So you can serially measure it, whereas CCTs may not be able to do that or conventional coagulation tests. What are some of the disadvantages of TAG, though? First, it requires training. It requires training of the healthcare personnel to understand what are these parameters, how do I intervene on it. Um, it requires training of phlebotomy of how do I run the TAG machine itself. Second is this concept of row 10 versus TAG. While they're very, very similar and they look similar in terms of tracings and variables reported, they're not interchangeable. And so there must be the question of, can I use research based in TAG uh, on research based in ROTEM and are they interchangeable for results or not? Which most would say no right now. Third, there's a little bit of complexity, obviously, if you haven't picked it up so far. Um, the tracings themselves and the numerous variables can be a little bit complicated to understand and wrap your head around. And then how do I intervene on those variables in my patient in front of me? So you have to be able to understand which assay should I order for which patient, as well as what does this variable mean and how am I going to intervene on it? And then lastly, there's resources required. The tag machine itself, you have to actually obtain, and then you have to obtain the assays, which all cost money, as well as you need phlebotomy to be able to run the blood sample on the tag machine for you. So this leads me to my first question, which you can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333 to join. A significantly prolonged time to form a clot would be represented by which tag parameter? A, decreased alpha angle, B, increased LY30, C, increased R, or D, decreased K. So I agree with the majority of responses here. There would be an increased time, uh, increased R, because that's that clot formation time, right? It wouldn't be an alpha, uh, decreased alpha angle or decreased K, because that goes out of clot formation and more into clot kinetics. And then LY30 is all about fibrinolysis, so that wouldn't make sense in this question either. So what patient populations has TAG been studied in? And I know this looks like a lot, and it is. Um, and there's a lot more that are not listed here that TAG has actually been studied in as well. Um, and so we won't cover all of these. But I wanted to give you an idea of what, it, what research is being done out there related to TAG in these patient populations. The first one I won't cover, but it has, I would say, the strongest support for it is liver transplant. Um, specifically guiding blood product resuscitation intraoperatively. Um, it's pretty uh, known that TAG is beneficial in this realm. The second one I will talk about today is trauma, specifically guiding resuscitation, medication-induced coagulopathy, hepatic, including cirrhotic patients specifically in chronic liver disease, guiding uh, it resuscitation and bleeding, as well as for invasive procedures. Neurologic, it's been studied a little bit in, specifically intracranial hemorrhage and acute ischemic stroke. Sepsis, uh, specifically looking at the question of sepsis-induced coagulopathy. VTE and DOAC monitoring. And then the last two I won't discuss that it has been evaluated in as well are pregnancy and mechanical circulatory support device uh, anticoagulation monitoring. So let's start by talking about trauma. Before jumping into TAG's research in trauma, I think it's important to understand what trauma-induced coagulopathy is. 
TIC is a basically um, reported in multiple different patients, and they can report different phenotypes of TIC depending on numerous characteristics of the patient, like baseline characteristics, comorbidities, and the injury pattern of the trauma itself. This usually uh, globally results in two common phenotypes of TIC. The first one being global, global coagulopathy from platelet and fibrinogen depletion, and the second one being significant fibrinolysis or a hyperfibrinolytic state. As you can see already that uh, conventional coagulation tests may fail to actually capture these types of phenotypes in patients, where there is a potential for TAG to capture these though. The first two studies I want to talk about was a study by Unran colleagues in 2019 and then a study by Mohammed and colleagues in 2017. They specifically looked at TAG and trauma in patients utilizing a massive transfusion protocol. They compared conventional coagulation tests, so PT, APTT, and INR compared to TAG. And as you can see across the board, all of these outcomes were statistically significant uh, for decreased blood product resuscitation in the TAG group with the exception being in the Mohammed study getting slightly higher platelets in the TAG group, though. When evaluating this, though, they did mention it was appropriate for the patient population, and they didn't have any comment other than it was a small sample size. So you can already see that we're reducing our blood product resuscitation, but between these two studies, there was no differences in mortality. And in addition to that, the Mohammed study actually found statistically significant decreases in both ICU and hospital length of stay by about seven and 10 days, respectively. Furthermore, a study by Gonzalez and colleagues in 2016 was a single-center prospective pragmatic randomized trial looking at TAG-guided resuscitation for massive transfusion protocol patients. In this study, when they compared a pre- and post-TAG, basically, where in the pre-group they used conventional coagulation tests, they found a higher that was statistically significant 28-day survival by about 14% and a numerically lower death due to hemorrhage, although it was not statistically significant. Overall, when they completed an odds ratio for risk of death, they found that TEG may actually help with that, as the odds ratio was 2.17, showing a higher risk of death with the conventional coagulation tests. One thing to note, though, was that the conventional coagulation test group in this study uh, may have been sicker at baseline with higher injury severity scores, though. But overall, this starts to give us this idea of well, we can re limit resuscitation or blood product resuscitation use, and we may have an impacts or signals to mortality benefits with the use of TAG compared to conventional coagulation tests. In addition, some other studies have also found some unique or interesting findings in relation to TAG and trauma. The first study was a study by Kane and colleagues looking at orthopedic surgery patients, which found that an actual R value or that clot formation time greater than or equal to six minutes actually could predict mortality. That being said, the odds ratio was 16 with a very, very wide confidence interval, likely secondary to their small sample size, but it gives you an idea that these patients may have a higher risk then of mortality. The second study by Stetler and colleagues found that it may be able to actually prevent, uh, predict VTE risk in trauma patients. They found that in particularly hypercoagulable patients, so high MA patients, um, shorter R's, essentially, uh, that there was a higher odds ratio for these patients developing a VTE, so you could get an upfront tag to tell who is more likely to eventually develop a clot um, that hasn't developed one yet. And then lastly, an interesting study by Martin and colleagues found that tag may be beneficial in identifying procoagulable phenotypes of TBI specifically. In their study, they found that compared to conventional coagulation tests, 
and verify now, which is, has this platelet function um, that tech, not sure what's going on, so <laughs> uh, compared to conventional coagulation test and verify now, which assesses platelet function, um, that TAG was able to identify a procoagulable phenotype, specifically in penetrating TBI patients, where the other two failed to do so. So this all kind of culminates to showing that TAG in trauma definitely has a role, and it's being more expanded in its use and becoming more common practice. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about medication-induced coagulopathy. First, talking about TAG and warfarin. Now, TAG and warfarin is kind of a controversial and complicated topic, as two studies by Franchi and Schmidt that came out in 2015 did find that TAG did correlate with INR, specifically the R time, a prolonged R time indicating a higher INR. INR. Whereas a study by Durnham and colleagues, which came out in 2014, failed to do so. Furthermore, that study by Durnham said about 45.5% of patients who had uh, prolonged R times had normal INRs, or sorry, had normal R times but had uh, prolonged INRs. Therefore, you couldn't reliably say that TAGs could predict a prolonged INR and thus an anticoagulated patient on warfarin. Of note, all of these studies were done with rapid TAGs specifically. That said, I did think this was an interesting table that I found in the Schmidt study specifically, which looked at the predictive value of an R time to classify an INR above 1.2. And as you can see at their pre-specified time points of R equal to 4.5 minutes, 8.1 minutes, and 15.1 minutes, and the corresponding positive predictive and negative predictive value, there seemed to be both a linear relationship between positive predictive value and the prolonged R time, as well as an inverse relationship for negative predictive value. Leading me to believe that potentially that we just haven't found the specific R time and INR cutoff that we need to find to identify this medication-induced coagulopathy. Overall, though, based off this controversial and conflicting evidence, I would feel uncomfortable using TAG alone to identify a patient utilizing warfarin, especially knowing that INR right now can reliably do that. The second anticoagulation category I wanted to discuss was DOACs, specifically our anti 10 inhibitors and DTIs. Three studies have really looked at TAG and DOAC identification, the first two by the same author, Diaz and colleagues, and the last one by Kobayashi and colleagues. The first one was a study back in 2015 by Diaz and colleagues looking at a prospective observational study of 14 healthy patients on DOACs using a rapid tag specifically. In this study, which was an exploratory analysis, they were able to identify that a prolonged R time did identify patients taking DOACs. Their second study that came out in 2019 um, was a prospective multicenter observational study of 190 healthy patients on DOACs with TAG6S which is a specific form of TAG uh, built to identify DOAC-induced coagulopathy. In this study, they found that patients, uh, that they were able to get a 98.3% sensitivity and 100% specificity at identifying DOAC-induced coagulopathy. So pretty promising results. Unfortunately, though, a study came out by Kobayashi and colleagues, which is a post hoc analysis of a prospective multicenter observational study of 182 trauma patients on DOACs. Of the 182, all of them had conventional coagulation tests that were drawn, and 50 of them had TAGs that were drawn. And when they looked at back at those conventional coagulation tests and TAG, they found that they were unable to identify the coagulopathy or baseline DOAC-induced coagulopathy that these patients had. Um, there was a couple of reasons why they thought that this might be so. The first one being that did the trauma impact the actual R value and therefore limiting our ability to identify the DOAC itself, which we found in the other two Diaz studies that the R time was the direct correlator. 
The other thing that they had mentioned was that there are times in their study um, were a little bit lower than what you might see in the baseline average, so the elevation in our time secondary to the DOAC may not have been caught outside the normal range. But overall, I think the big takeaway for uh, TEGS and DOACs is that we have an unclear ability to actually identify if there's a DOAC-induced coagulopathy based off these three studies. I will say that most literature in healthy patients points at our ability to do so, but I wouldn't feel comfortable utilizing it to definitively say a patient's on a DOAC or not. So overall, TEG right now, I think, in medication-induced coagulopathy can't reliably tell us about warfarin nor DOACs and therefore shouldn't be utilized. Which leads me into my second question. Uh, which of the following anticoagulants can be reliably detected with rapid TEG? Warfarin, DOACs, both, or neither? So I'd agree with the majority of responses in neither can reliably be detected. But I do appreciate the one brave soul that said DOACs, um, as DOACs in healthy patients may be able to do so based on the Diaz studies. And I think this points that there is some controversial literature out there uh, related to this topic, and I think as we get more research, we'll have a more definitive answer. So I wanted to now switch gears and talk about liver disease. And we all know that liver disease walks this tightrope of basically a coagulopathic and procoagulable state at all times. Um, and Based on that, we know that conventional coagulation tests like INR may, be, uh, may fail to reliably predict their coagulopathic state or procoagulable state because it will typically be elevated in these patients, which we know to be not a true thing or a myth of autoanticoagulation. So what about TAG, though? TAG, I think, has a unique opportunity, as so many studies looking at CCT specifically have failed to predict that spontaneous and post-invasive procedure bleeding risks shown here. One interesting study from Drolls and colleagues looked at critically ill cirrhotic patients and found that a fibrinogen level less than 200 milligrams per deciliter was associated with a six times risk of major spontaneous bleeding, thus hinting that maybe a fibrinogen plays a major role in this bleeding, um, which we can reliably uh, state or get from TAG essentially, or TAG assays. And we know that TAG has been noted to have strong and consistent associations with traditional fibrinogen levels. So it led to more research in this area to uh, evaluate, can we actually utilize it? So the first thing I want to talk about was cirrhotic bleeding, specifically comparing TAG versus conventional coagulation tests for guided resuscitation. Breaking it down into two studies, one by Kumar and colleagues and one by Root and colleagues, looking at non-variceal and variceal bleeding specifically. These studies were randomized controlled trials of 96 and 60 patients specifically. And overall across the board, TEG had statistically significant reductions in blood product resuscitation. In the first study, which is non-variceal bleeding, they found lower transfusion-related reactions. And then they also found a lower ICU length of stay. In the second study, they actually found a lower rebleeding rate at day 42 as well. Some of the specific numbers supporting this was less than half of the patients in the TEG group had transfusion-related reactions. We shaved one day off of their ICU length of stay. And a staggering only 10% versus 36.7% of patients had re-bleeding in the variceal arm with the use of TEG. The other side of this coin is invasive procedure and post-procedure bleeding in cirrhotic patients who have severe coagulopathy. In this interesting study, they basically randomized patients to TAG or conventional coagulation tests and had pre-specified cutoffs for both TAG and CCTs at which patients would get either fresh frozen plasma or platelets. They found that overall TAG had significantly lower blood product resuscitation or utilization 
um, as previously described, um, with 16.7% of the tag group getting that compared to 100%, and this is prim primarily driven by platelets and FFP. Furthermore, only one occurrence of post-procedural bleeding actually occurred, and this was in the CCT arm, not the tag arm, thus going to show that we can get away with less blood product, or blood product utilization with tags, but not have a higher risk of bleeding in these patients. Now I wanted to switch gears and talk about neurologic, and specifically starting with intracranial hemorrhage. First, talking about aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. One of the devastating, uh, devastating complications of an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage is the development of delayed cerebral ischemia, or DCI. And while DCI is a very complex mechanism and pathophysiology behind it, one of the components is platelets being involved in that, and that TAG may be able to identify platelet activation early on, thus guiding interventions like antiplatelets to try to limit the damage DCI does. That being said, this is all theoretical and has not actually been shown yet in research and clinical studies. The second interesting point was ICH or intracranial hemorrhage. Intracranial hemorrhage can sometimes uh, present with a hypercoagulable state in patients, and patients that were in this hypercoagulable state were typically be able to be identified via TAG parameters, whereas CCTs or other modalities failed to do so. That being said, this is once, once again very theoretical and not actually been shown in true clinical research trials. And overall, TAG and intracranial hemorrhage is pretty limited in literature, and it's mostly for prognostication at this time. I think a really interesting area that TAG may be expanding into is acute ischemic stroke, though, where clinicians are constantly faced with the question of to give or not give thrombolytics or thrombolysis in patients. And the typical breakdown of should we or should we not is we have to figure out, is this truly an acute ischemic stroke, or is it a hemorrhagic stroke, or is it a transient ischemic attack, or is this patient a stroke mimic? And the current process is to basically evaluate the patient as fast as possible, get neuro neuro neurology involved in that evaluation, and then get a CT head to rule out some of these other more insidious uh, concerning uh, presentations. But shouldn't there be a better way or a faster way we could do this? Another potential theoretical benefit of TAG is that it could potentially identify patients who have a higher clot burden in acute ischemic stroke guiding therapy or lytics. And that would be identified through elevated alpha angles and maximum amplitude. And therefore, could they benefit more from fibrinolysis? Unfortunately, though, there has been one study looking at TAG in alteplase use already, which is a prospective trial of 171 acute ischemic stroke patients in which they did a TAG prior to TPA and a TAG 10 minutes post-TPA, and they found no differences in pre- and post-TPA uh, TAG values, whereas they may have been expecting to find a higher LY30 or decreased R or decreased MA through the use of, uh, of TPA because of its thrombolytic properties. The one thing they interestingly did find that I haven't talked about yet is this delta value that may uh, predict the risk of hemorrhagic transformation. R times can actually be split into two subcategories, with the later one being a delta time um, at the very end of the R interval. Um, and this may actually help predict a hemorrhagic transformation, and so it should be further research to actually identify if that's of benefit and should be used clinically. And then the last interesting part with acute ischemic stroke is post-acute ischemic stroke and recovery of these patients. This study, which was a prospective observational study of 211 consecutive acute ischemic stroke patients out of China, split patients off of their hospital admission tag into three tiers based off of maximum amplitude. 
the first tier being the smallest MA, which is less than or equal to 62.4, the second one being 62.4 to 66, and the third one being greater than or equal to 66. And when they did one year of follow-up in these patients, they found that a higher percentage of patients with a lower MA had an MRS score or good functional outcome of zero or one at that one year follow-up. And as you can see, when you went to tier two, that MRS score of zero or one percentage dropped, and then it also dropped even again at tier three, which is statistically significant difference between tiers one and tier three. Thus leading to the question of can we use TAG to identify patients who are gonna have the highest clot burden once again in acute ischemic stroke and may require additional interventions. They even wanted so far to calculate an odds ratio for patients who had an MA greater than or equal to 66 um, associated with that unfavorable functional outcome, which was 1.1 and statistically significant. Lastly, I just wanted to talk briefly about some potential future uh, applications of TAG that I think are interesting. Uh, the first one being sepsis. One of the issues with sepsis is this concept of sepsis-induced coagulopathy, in which patients may present with a hyper or hypofibrinolytic state secondary to the sepsis um, as a phenotype, and so TAG may have the propensity to identify those patients uh, early on in their care, thus guiding interventions. The second one is venous thromboembolism risk. An interesting study out of 61 patients in a surgical ICU who were on anoxaparin and getting both 10A levels as well as TAG levels, or TAG uh, values, I should say, found that while 10A did not predict the VTE risk of these surgical ICU patients, and our time less than 1.5 minutes uh, did uh, was able to predict this uh, statistically significant risk of VTE. And that 1.5 minutes was between the VTE group and the non-VTE group. And then lastly, DOAC monitoring. As we know right now, there's not a lot of monitoring that goes into DOACs. However, certain patient populations are very high risk for failure, such as extremely overweight patients, uh, patients with acute renal failure or liver failure. Um, and this may be able to guide our use of DOACs in these patients and identify those who are at higher risk for failure or identify how to change therapy after they do fail. However, these are all still quite theoretical in nature. So what are some barriers to widespread use of TAG? Well, first, it's a major practice change, and you have to re retrain all your staff about how to interpret TAGs, how to use TAGs, how to order, what the different assays is or are, um, and what interventions you want to provide based off the TAG values themselves. With that, there comes an added component of complexity uh, that has to be overcome through more use and experience and education. Fourth, there's, um, there's pretty limited literature right now for TAG, but I would say in the last five years, a lot of literature has come out, and there's a lot of research being done in the realm of TAG, um, potentially making it the standard of care in multiple different disease states. And then lastly, it's expensive. You have to be able to obtain a TAG machine. You have to be able to have the personnel to run it. You have to have assays to run it as well. Um, that being said, when you look at, once you have the TAG machine compared to conventional coagulation tests and compare the costs with the reduced blood product utilization, it may be actually a cost savings uh, utilization or uh, process. So TAG at Mayo Clinic. Right now, it's not currently widely accepted practice outside of a couple of different areas, such as liver transplantation, some trauma patients, and then intraoperative use primarily. It's currently centralized in our lab department, really limiting that point of care application. It's in our lab department in the hospital, as well as the ED lab has a TAG machine, uh, but it limits your use if, say, you're in the ICU and you need a, a rapid TAG right away. 
And then lastly, to actually get those tag tracings, you have to sign up for an application, which does cost money that comes from the department. Um, and so we only get spit outs of the actual parameters or values of the tag itself. So this leads me to my last question. Which of these patient populations would you be most likely to utilize TEGIN to assess if a patient may be taking an anticoagulant prior to admission, to guide blood product resuscitation and trauma, to identify risk of procedure-related bleeding in a cirrhotic patient, or to guide alteplase use in acute ischemic stroke? So I agree with the majority of responses here in guiding blood product resuscitation and trauma. I would say this has the most literature supporting its use and it's its most widespread use. That said, I don't think C is a wrong answer either. I think that we do have some literature supporting uh, uh, the identification of procedure-related risk of bleeding and that it may be better than CCTs. However, it was limited to that one study with an N of 60 overall. I wouldn't pick A, as we've talked about already, uh, because anticoagulants, uh, TEG can't reliably predict it based off the conflicting evidence currently out there. And then D, I would say it's pretty theoretical right now, and there is, a, once again, some conflicting evidence in guiding its use in alteplase. So in summary, viscelastography, specifically TEG, is a growing area of interest in multiple different disease states for coagulation assessment. And I think it has the potential to become standard of care compared to our current conventional coagulation tests uh, for these disease states with further management of coagula coagulation status. And then lastly, though, there is significant limitations to the widespread use of TEG, including limited literature, potentially higher costs up front, and then complexity in implementation. Overall, I hope as audience members that you feel you are comfortable understanding what a TEG is walking away from this presentation and potentially can identify some disease states that have some promising research and literature supporting its use so that if it does become widespread uh, in patient care that we are prepared and ready to intervene based off TEG values. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.